There's a 50% chance I'm going to get emotional, man. There's you. I mean, depending on what story you want to go to, it could be like, oh, that's funny. Oh, that's crazy. Or, oh, my gosh, that's tragic. What did I do to myself? Almost 20 years ago, our paths crossed in the sneaker world. And since then, we have been on a professional and personal journey together. We've made a lot of mistakes and had a lot of fun and even a few wins along the way. Our goal is to share our experiences and insights so you don't have to make some of the same errors that we did. And in addition, we want to help you begin to think about things a little different. So join us as we unpack our unsolicited and sometimes polarizing views on business, faith, and family with questions that make you want to unfollow. What up, AP? Welcome to episode five. It is Father's Day, so we're going to talk about fatherhood we got to talk about it i mean father's day 2020 in the middle of a pandemic and so much social unrest and crazy times what better Mm. i think moment than take a second to reflect on our journeys as fathers uh the fathers we had the fathers we want to be but also what we've learned along the way and so i think this is a great time shout out to all the fathers out there how was your father's day by the way daryl before we hop into the to, to the to the segment well, this is the first Father's Day that has ever landed on my wedding anniversary as well. And we doubled up on both of those. So it was amazing. Um, we actually went out to the lake today, man. Joe and I just spent some time on the water. We actually went and looked at an old house that some buddies just bought that we're going to help them do some renovations to. So it's pretty much a normal Sunday for us. You guys? Yeah. yeah. Oh, for us, I mean... Lazy day. Woke up, the uh, kids and the wife made pancakes. We hung out at the house. It was raining today here in the Dallas Fort Worth area. So we hung out uh, on the in the back. Uh, rain coming down, really just like listening to music, hanging out. We watched church online and yeah. we're just hanging out with the kids. They're eating. We're just hanging yeah. out. It was a very slow, lazy day. Um, mm. Yeah, just time to just reflect uh, with the kids to, you know, play games, have fun. To me, that's the perfect Father's Day. Uh, yeah. Turn my brain off and have some time to unplug with the kiddo. So yeah, it, it was a great Father's Day. Um, recently, you actually had to take yeah. like a dedicated day off, right? Like a mental rest day. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> what was that about? Yeah, you know, so we took off as a team, and so uh, the Patron marketing team. We took off. Um, it was about a couple of weeks ago. We took off. You know, it was after uh, the George Floyd situation happened in Minneapolis. Um, and I think, you know, there's a lot of challenging conversations we were having as a brand and as a business, not yeah. only um, confronting uh, the societal kind of epidemic of racism, but that started us to have individual conversations of our history, our heritage and our own struggles um, with all kinds of things. And so we took a day off as a team just to unplug. So some people learned hmm. right about history. Some people watched some, uh, you know, Netflix documentaries on, you know, the the preschool to prison pipeline and how it's affected yeah. black America. Some people read a book, some people just unplug and play with their kids, but it was a great opportunity. I think for us to take a minute as a marketing team. So right, this is a business team that took time off to take care of ourselves internally and then come back and move forward. So yeah, it, yeah. it was a great mental health uh, speed bump for us to reset before kind of trying to move forward. Cause this has been a heck of a year, my brother. Well, the reason I bring it up is I saw that you used your day to actually yeah. play with your kids. Yeah. To so me, I wanted, th- yeah, that's it. That, I want to start the conversation health. off that way. Yeah. <laughs> like for you, playing yeah, with yeah. the kids seems like it's yeah. 
it's a way that you detox or relax. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. It's you know, I think fatherhood's my you know, it's it's my passion. It's it's not a hobby. It's something I, I feel called to do. And so, yeah, you know, I think for all the um, challenges of work, to me, the best way to unplug and reset is just time with my kids, uh, with my wife, and just to be be a family. And I think this COVID situation has allowed us to do a lot more of that as well. Even mm-hmm. though my kids remind me, "Hey, daddy, you work all the time." I'm like, well. I work from home so you can see me working because you can look through the door and see me, but I'm here. Like, I haven't been on a plane in like four months. So, yeah, I yeah, know it, it's been great. Yeah, which if you guys don't know Adrian's schedule, it's crazy. Before COVID, he literally is all over the world every week. And I think we'll get to that in this episode about how we have to balance those two things um, when. Work and family collide. Ooh, that's a little bit of foreshadowing. So. Dun, dun, dun. I love it, man. Yeah, so let, let's hop in, man. I, I think, you know, fatherhood is such a critical uh, topic, I think, not only for guys, but also for, yeah. for women, the women we love, the women we work with, but also our families, our mothers, our, our, our sisters, our daughters as well. Yeah. And so, you know, I think kind of reflecting on, you know, what is that, you know, let's start with kind of the historical perspective, right? So, Start with the dad you had, whether it's, you know, good memories, challenging memories. Take us yeah. back, man, to, you know, you and, and on the farm, you and little Daryl. I think I heard Daryl was a fat kid. So plump, <laughs> plump Daryl on the farm. Take us back, man. That is so true. Yeah, I was a, I was a fat kid. I'll give you guys some perspective. In fact, the waist of my pants was longer than the inseam. I shopped in that section they called Husky. I don't know if you remember that Husky area. <laughs> but um, yeah, I had the benefit of an amazing father. Um, he's still alive. My grandfather's actually still alive. And I think I was at such an advantage, especially as it comes to understanding a relationship between a heavenly father A lot of our friends, male or female, have always kind of struggled sometimes with viewing God as a father because they kind of have a hole or a space where they haven't had a great relationship with their own here on earth. And so for me, that relationship with my heavenly father has always made sense because I've had such a good male role model here on earth. His name's Russell. He's the man. He's not into the Enneagram, but if he was, I'd tell you that he's a nine wing one. He's an engineer, but he's super laid back and I love him. But we grew up on a farm, so he raised three boys. I'm the oldest of uh, three boys. And my middle brother, Aaron, uh, used to be really big into 4-H. And so he used to raise what were called uh, purebred Simmental. They were these really, really large cows. They were about 2,000 pounds or more. And so one of his prize cows got into some bad apples. And those bad apples were like these little crab apples that you're really not supposed to be eating anyway. And they messed its stomach up. And so its stomach got all turned into knots, and it ended up dying in our barn. Now, when I say barn, like in West Virginia, like our barn was not really like a barn. It was more like some poles with some wood on it. Um, But it was shelter for the animals, and so that cow died in the barn. We had to figure out a way to get this 2,000-pound animal out of the barn. So, you know, you grew up in Fort Worth. You're around cattle. What would you use, Adrian? Hmm, let's see. Maybe I would try to tie something to it, drag it. Big truck, tie it, drag maybe out of the barn. That's my that'd be my option A. Man, and that's what we chose. We yes. chose option A. So we got the good old Massey Ferguson tractor fired up and we backed it into the barn. 
But the challenge was it wasn't a straight shot, so we couldn't just pull the cow straight out. So we had to pull the cow out and to the left. Well, so we hooked this big strap around its neck, and we just start pulling. And the cow's neck just starts stretching and stretching and stretching. Dude, this thing is like white and tan, and its neck starts to look like a giraffe. And I'll never forget that I yelled at my dad. I said, if its head comes off, I'm out of here. <laughs> so my brother's driving the tractor and my dad yells at him to like give it more gas. And so he gives it all he can. And the tractor is like riding a wheelie. And all the wheels are coming off the ground. And finally, we get this huge 2,000 pound animal like moved out of the barn. Its neck is like three or four times longer than it used to be. And we start moving it down the field. Now, keep in mind, we didn't have like like a huge working farm. So we didn't have all the, you know, tractors and like implements and like digging devices that one would need to bury a cow. So my dad decides that the best course of action is to burn the carcass. What could go wrong? (laughs) This is a bad idea, Russell. So... We start to gather up all of the debris that's down in the end of the field. So for you guys that don't know, I grew up on a 500-acre farm, and about 50 of those acres were like hay fields or like wide open fields, but about the other 450 acres were mountains, and it was kind of surrounded the, the fields in the middle. So if you got this picture, it's dusk, you got two boys out in the field with their dad, and they're dragging a 2,000-pound behemoth through the field. The sun's about to set, and then they start looking for basically trash to burn with this animal. That's bad. So we start to make a big pile, kind of like Conan the Barbarian. Have you ever seen Conan the Barbarian where oh, yeah. they, at the end they basically like burn his body up? Looked a lot like that. So we've got tires, we've got old pallets, we've got old boards. And by this time, it's starting to get dark. We cover this thing in diesel fuel, and we light it on fire. And we're sitting on the back of the truck. And I'll never, ever forget this. It starts to smell like burning flesh and hair. And I don't know if you guys have ever smelled burning flesh and hair, but it is a very unique smell. In the, in like the midst of the flames, you can see the silhouette of this cow. And all of a sudden, we hear, pow, pop, bloop, 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 bloop. And it sounded like, like, like a science experiment, like a volcano, right, had just erupted. And my dad goes, well, boys, that was stomach number one. You've got three more to go. Have a good night. And Russell left us out in the field all night to make sure that that whole animal burned. We were probably out there till three or four o'clock in the morning. It was an experience. So you're asking, like, D, like, what's the purpose of this story? The purpose of this story is is that my dad taught us that we had to do the job until it was done, even if it was something we didn't want to do, even if it was ugly and dirty. And to this day, you guys know that I work in leather, so I have a very special place in my heart for what it means to take those hides and to recycle them and make them into leather as opposed to just burning them up. That is the whitest, most country story I've ever Ooh, heard in my come life. On, boy. <laughs> Dude, I am sure there's some boys in Fort Worth that have ones better than that. They're, yeah, oh, absolutely. They just uh, don't look like me. They look more like you. 
<laughs> Black oh, cowboys, awesome. come on. Okay, oh, I love that, man. So uh, that's that's a good lesson. I'm, I got to reflect on. I mean, growing up, so I'm I'm the second oldest of six kids uh, to Reverend Donald Parker. Um, mm-hmm. It's interesting. I didn't know a lot of my dad's story until the past recent years because so much as you grow up right your yeah. your dad doesn't let you in and all the stuff right i mean yeah. you, you see your dad as this icon this superhero this invincible being and you know it wasn't until at least the past couple of years I, I learned you know some of the things he struggled with or uh some of the uncertainty he faced um so as i reflect we'll talk about this later i wish i had known some of that i wish i had yeah. known Man, I wish I had seen some of the chinks in the armor. But I remember this is a superhero moment of of my dad. So we moved. We were born in Amarillo, Texas. Uh, most of me and my siblings. Uh, one was born here in the Fort Worth area. But uh, so of the six kids, five were born in uh, Amarillo, Texas, in the Panhandle. Uh, and we had just moved to Fort Worth, relocated. My dad yeah. was going to Southwestern Theological Seminary. So he he had decided he had been in ministry. I think about four or five years. Decided. I'm going all in to get my master's of divinity, you know, working at a church. And so we moved to this neighborhood in Fort Worth. It's called uh, Carter Park. It's like southeast Fort Worth. And I remember, you know, we had one of those old station wagons with the wood grain on the outside. Mm, right. So them. no seatbelts in the back. You put all the kids, you know, family of eight kids in the back. We're just rolling wood grain. And so we lived um, on a house and the house uh the driveway of the house we stayed in was right in front of an uh, intersection. And so if you like right outside of our driveway was the street. But also if you kept going, there was a street going down a hill. Yeah. And so our car was parked there. I think it was like a weekend. Let's say a Saturday morning. We we're loading the Parker kids up to go grocery shopping. Um, and as you can imagine, loading six kids into a car is, you know, it's a it's an effort. Right. I mean, you, you make yeah. a couple trips at least like, you know, you kind of get one. I think uh, my sister Rachel was a baby at the time. So myself, uh, my younger brother Nick, and my younger sister Erica were in the car first. We were the first round. They were going back, you know, for the second round of kids to to put them in. Somehow my sister got in the front seat and somehow disengages the parking brake. Oh, no. Oh, no. And so the car starts to slowly back out. And we're like, oh, this is awesome. And we look up, and we are going past the driveway. So, we're, oh, this is happening. This car is moving. My parents run outside the house, right? And I think one of them might have saw it. And we looked up, and our eyes met. And our these big eyes hit theirs. And we were like, this is the best thing ever. We're about to go on a trip. And my parents' eyes were like, oh, my gosh, this is horror. And They're we gonna started die. flying down this hill because it was an incline. So we went across the street. In front of our house, and started to go down the hill. So my mom, you know, like you know, she's you know, she just had a kid. So she starts running down the hill. My brother Davy, my older brother, he starts running down the hill, and there's my dad. So my dad was you know a pretty good athlete in college, uh, in college and high school. I think he played football. This guy, I mean, this big black guy, I mean, just going. I mean, his arms were <laughs> pumping like a locomotive. His legs were hitting. That. I mean, he was going. I remember as a kid. It was the funniest thing ever. Now I can look back and I see the terror in their eyes because they're kids. Like three of their kids are going down the hill in a car. I through an intersection. Thinking, yeah, through an intersection. And they are running. 
I mean, he, I've never seen anyone run. I mean, in my head, he was running like, you know, faster than a bullet. This was Superman moment. And he's running. He's getting it. I mean, he is in his head. That's got to be the fastest he's ever run in his life. What's he going to do? Like, what's, like, what's the plan here? You know, it's like probably in one of the Western movies, right? He's going to hop on the, the front <laughs> and then maybe climb on top of the hood. No, we're going down, man. We are going down. He, they give up. My mom gave up. My brother gave up. My dad didn't stop. My dad kept running after this car, and we kept getting further and further away. We ended up going right past a, a telephone pole, which would have been bad. Yeah. Telephone pole wins. Right, We grazed the telephone pole and landed right in the uh, front driveway of another house and ended up crashing into somebody's house. <sighs> but the car was, like, totaled. But we were fine. Like, we, we were not a scratch. We thought it was, like, the world's best amusement park right there in our house, et cetera. And I remember, like, I always, and we always we talk about this because it's, it's such a crazy family moment where you realize, man, like, how bad could that have been? Yeah. But I remember my dad never stopped running for us, like, ever. Yeah. Even when he kind of knew, like, man, if I even get there, what am I going to do? Or, you know, quite frankly, like, man... I, I can't catch this car. He never stopped running for us. And I, I remember, you know, I think one of the things that taught me, you know, and what I'm doing for my kids, right? I'm never going to stop running for my kids, right? Yeah. No matter what, right? So I think it's a, it's a good reminder, especially on Father's Day, right? Like, man, like, they might be going through something that I can't quite get to them, but I'm running for them. Um, man, yeah. So now we look back. Go ahead. I was going to say, even if Reverend Parker didn't know what he was going to do, right? Like, that's the metaphor. Like, even as we're dads running after our kids in these moments and we don't know exactly what we're going to do, we are not going to give up. Yeah. You're not stopping. You're not stopping. And he he was there. And we're laughing. We we thought it was the world. Like I said, this is flags for us. Now we can look back and say, oh, yeah, that's kind of bad. I can't imagine it happening to my kids right now. I've got three. I can't imagine three going down the hill in a car and what would be going through my head. So now we reflect on the world's greatest moments of the Parker family. But yeah, that was an early memory, dude. That, that was a, that was a crazy one. What part of Texas has hills? Yeah. <laughs> slight hill, very slight hill, very slight hill. Oh man. Yeah. So it's, it's crazy. Um, yeah, it's interesting. So let's talk about this idea of your dad is invincible, right? Or I mm. mean, when you grow up, you're, I mean, your dad is your end all be all. I think, what I'm learning is the stories we tell ourselves of the fathers we had have such a big impact on the fathers we're becoming. Yeah. Because I think our, our father becomes our watermark. And if you're lucky enough to have a, have a, a father in your life, either yeah. historically or now, your father becomes that watermark by which you measure or role model what you want to be or what you don't want to be. Let me ask you a question, though. What was the first time you can recall in a significant way, a material way, that your dad wasn't invincible? You remember mm. seeing like, ooh, dad? Yeah, another like, cow ooh. story. Um, yeah. So we are loading up cows in the back of an old pickup truck. And by the way, if you live on a farm, like, listen, I'm sorry. We lived on like a real, real like redneck farm, right? And so we had this old 68 Chevy that had wooden floorboards. And it had cattle racks on the side that my dad had built. And for some reason, like, he thought that this was this was the right vehicle to use to transport bovine. <laughs> and it is not. 
Um, my brother, who's a professional buffalo farmer, can tell you that like this was not the right apparatus to be hauling cows around him. But at that time, you know, we're poor, and my dad's just making a way to get these things to market, and so he's. He's, haul- he's pushing these cows from behind. He's twisting their tails, and he's pushing them through the chute up into the back of the truck. And one of these mama cows says, Nuh-uh, I ain't going. And she turned around in the chute somehow. I don't know how this cow turned around the chute, because if you've ever been to a cattle chute, they're very narrow intentionally, right, so that that cow cannot turn around. Somehow she turned around the chute and came back down at him, and I remember she ran right over top of him. And basically he grabbed her neck, and tried to hang on and then kind of slid down her neck and she stomped on him and went off. And I remember in that moment thinking like, my dad's dead, you know, and he got up and he shook it off. And I'm sure he probably had a couple broken ribs, if I'm honest, because who gets stomped by a cow and, you know, doesn't have a broken rib afterwards. But <laughs> If I were you guys, I'd stay away from cows for right the rest of my life. I've had, I've had so much cow baggage i wouldn't even have to be able to drink milk but somehow <laughs> you guys are fully functioning humans like how does that happen yeah that's why i'm in leather now it's just revenge but yeah. um yeah i remember thinking like man my dad is really hurt um and my dad's not a big guy my dad's like five eight five nine maybe a buck 65 buck 70 you know but to your point when you're a kid like he's big and so you know when i look at photos of your dad your dad was Swole City there for a minute, like big arms, <laughs> like Swole thick, City, yeah. athletic dude, right? And I'm sure yeah. as a kid, you guys must have thought, like, this dude is the man. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, I remember um, we, we always grew up. We were, we were just a working household uh, with six kids. You always had a job to do. I remember early on, like, uh, having to mow the yard, and there were hills, little hills in our yard, right, in Texas. Mm-hmm. I remember I was afraid to go. Uh, on the incline with the lawnmower, because you know, my in my kid head, like a lawnmower on a hill slides down, and uh, and he would just like low, he would be able to like mow the lawn with one hand, like he would just move the lawnmower. And I remember down the hill, I remember thinking he's the strongest guy ever. Like, what mm-hmm. other human being could like roll a lawnmower yeah. down a hill with one hand? I mean, yeah. and you know, and he was such, I'd say, our idol, you know, a hero because he. Obviously, a smart guy, you know, one of the um, first engineers to graduate, black engineers to graduate from Texas Tech uh, Engineering School at that time, which was not. Un- and when he came out as a civil engineer working in California, Colorado, building dams and highways, et cetera, yeah. black people weren't in engineering, right? Um, yeah. And so, you know, I remember respecting him for that. But, you know, just the way he, he coached our soccer team, he uh, was a deacon at our church. He was active in our lives. He was, mm-hmm. you know, he was he was kind of very, very involved. We moved here. And I remember, um, you know, we had this kind of, you know, slice of life, you know, middle class uh, life. And, I, you yeah. know, he uh, when we moved to Fort Worth, you know, he took a blue collar job uh, so he could go to school and work. So he went to school and worked, you know, kind of yeah. kind of uh, full time. I remember, you know, us taking a like a lifestyle plunge, and I didn't know it at the time. Like for me, you know, when you're a kid, you don't really have a, a measure of poverty, or I, mean, I just knew, hey, I'm, I got clothes. Other kids got clothes, and I remember when I was at elementary school. I mean, somebody talking about how much their money their parents made, and I remember, you know, I think I, I don't know, I thought my dad made maybe I don't know thirty six, thirty eight thousand dollars or something at that time. I remember telling somebody that, and they were like. That ain't no money, you know. And she said it like that. I remember she said, "That ain't no money. You're poor." 
And I remember I went home and I asked my mom, like, are we poor? Like, mm-hmm. I, I didn't have a concept because yeah. we were happy. Yeah. And I remember, um, and I remember, you know, that, and then I started to look back and, I, oh, yeah, like how, how we always had to share rooms. Yeah. How we, you know, we had to negotiate like heat, like a, how, how high are we turning the heat on? Because, you know, the heat bill and things like that. And yeah. then, you know, towards the, and then after that, you know, we spent several years um, in the south side of Fort Worth, Texas, which uh, at that time in the 90s, it was it was a war zone. It was not a it was not a neighborhood you wanted to mm-hmm. walk through. It was not a neighborhood you wanted to live in. Um, and I remember, um, I don't think I never judged my parents for our decline in our quality of life because I always knew it was for a greater good because he wanted to be in ministry mm-hmm. and he he had almost made this deliberate sacrifice to give up his kind of white collar. Um, Role, but and also lifestyle to serve God. Yeah, but I remember always thinking, though, I, I think there probably this part of me that always was like, I can't let that happen to my family. Like, I won't let yeah. that happen. I remember, you know, waking up to you know gunshots or looking outside, literally outside my window, and seeing this guy, you know, shooting at this lady, um, wow. and the cops around, or you know, wow. all the gang activity. I mean, I remember that's the kind of stuff. Where I'm like, I won't like let. My family grew up in a place like this. I will not be able to like name the roaches in the bathroom like like mm. I grew up, you know. And so I remember. I think that gave me some baggage where I don't necessarily think I judge my parents or judge my dad, but I think it showed me like what I don't want to do. But also, I think it gave me some 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 baggage as well that I'm probably still unwinding from um, as well. So I, this is going to be a therapy podcast <laughs> more than anything. <laughs> you know, I thought about. Um, my dad specifically going into this evening's conversation. And I think I had a lot of empathy because my parents have never been perfect. They've, they've been great parents, but you know, hindsight is always 2020. And if I'm honest, like I probably hold them to a much higher standard than I hold myself in the current environment. And Joe and I, joke about it all the time that like we're still trying to figure out how to be parents and you know I don't think that that standard is fair for me in hindsight right to hold them to this big standard like they were great parents they were just trying to figure it out the best that they could and so I think man for the first time like even at 40 years old I was more empathetic now than I probably ever have been and I think that's probably because I'm going through it myself as well just like you do you do you have a kid that makes you a better dad? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, you know, for me, um, each of my kids come with a unique, I think, set of challenges and an opportunity um, to learn from. You know, I'd say marriage is the biggest mirror, but kids are like a graduate degree in humility. Yeah. And I think, you know, where there's Caleb, who's seven now, Chloe is five and Chandler is two. I'd probably say Chloe, uh, my oldest girl. Um, she's five. And I think um, what I'm learning from her is that, you know, I've got to make my ego an endangered species. Like the Hmm. ego that you bring to work that might be celebrated in a professional environment, bringing that ego home doesn't help. Right. And there's so many things um, Hmm. that you see and, you know, your sons or or your daughters. I think for her, because um, she's so sweet. Um, a lot of the tactics that you would use on on your firstborn or my son don't yeah. work. Like, um, but my son is very straightforward. Like, he's very linear. Like, I can see, I can see Caleb twenty years from now. Right. I, I can literally see, you know, him because he's just a linear 
like thing. Chloe every day is a new day. Chloe is just, I mean, her emotions, her her will, her wit, her humor. I mean, she's this evolving ball of just energy. And I don't know what to do half the time. So I yeah. learn, I listen. Um, so I think she's teaching me, um, I put my ego aside. Cause oftentimes I think parenting can be a sport for some, for some people. Hmm. I think parenting becomes a, Oh, I'm a good dad because I did these things or I'm a good mom. Right. Almost you have this parenting scorecard yeah. and you can seek validation for your own identity by how well you are perceived as a parent. Yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. But then you end up giving your kids baggage that they, they can't handle. And yeah. I think for me, just being open to say like I'm learning from you, like talk they talk to me, like what do you need, what do you want, or you know I'll pull the ripcord and tell Alicia, my wife, like you talk to her because I, I I don't know what to do. But I think she's making me a better listener. She's making mm. me a better observer, and I think she's teaching me how to um, how to just be there for somebody. I might not have an answer or a solution, just be there, just ha- have a presence. And so I, I have a, some stories on her I'll, I'll share later too that are just. Yeah, she's taught me so much. I mean, all my kids are unique and special, but I think for her in this season that we're in, she she's taught me so much by just listening and, and, and observing. Um, mm. But you, man, a kid kid that makes you a better uh, father, and all your kids are like so different. And you have a newborn, so that adds yeah. a whole other thing to it. I, I got to hear this, Ella, Easton, Emmanuel. I yeah. mean, well, there's no doubt that having a newborn makes you more selfless, right? Like there's no greater selfless act than getting up at two, three, four a.m. to feed a thing that can't really do anything for you. Um, but if I'm honest, it's it's Ella, and so there'll be a lot of mornings where, hey, it's especially when it's a school morning, it's the same thing. You need to get up, you need to get dressed, you need to make up your bed, and you need to come down and eat breakfast. Like that's all you need to do. Every morning, right? And somehow in between the waking and the leaving out the door, there's all kinds of other things that have all of a sudden taken precedent besides the original four things that we just discussed. And so one of the things that I struggled with is my temper in those moments because, you know, I am... Uh, I'm under kind of like this, or I was this perceived pressure of like, hey, we've got to get out the door on time and we've got to get you to school on time and I've got to be to the office on time. And there were some mornings in this last year, man, where I was really short with her. I made her cry. Um, I probably, if you were looking at it from the outsider, you'd say, man, like that's borderline, um, borderline abusive, like the way that I was yelling at her to get out the door and like get herself ready. I remember one morning I came upstairs and she was literally butt naked, like just running around upstairs. She had, she hadn't done anything. She hadn't got her clothes on. She hadn't made up her bed. She hadn't eaten breakfast. And like, we got to go. And she'd been up for like two hours. Like the kid gets up at six o'clock every morning, like on the dot. So she'd been up for two hours and just was running around naked upstairs. And I was really short with her, man. And I yelled at her and I made her cry. And actually, we ended up taking Easton on to school and we kept Ella back and kind of like unpacked it a little bit with her. And then I went on to the office afterwards. And when I came home that evening, I grabbed her and I said, hey, come with me, sweetie. And um, I took her in the golf cart out into the field. We live on about 10 acres and the front field is you know, kind of like this big hay field that you can kind of look back over the house and the mountains. 
It's beautiful. And we parked the golf cart and I looked at her and I said, hey, I'm sorry. Like, I'm sorry for yelling at you this morning to get ready for school. Um, it's not that big a deal if we're late. Um, and I know that I made you feel really bad and I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And she said, oh, yeah, Dad, it's okay. I forgive you. Um, she said, hey, by the way, did you know that when Evie evolves as a Pokemon, she has several different types of evolutions? <laughs> and I said, uh, okay, yeah, I guess we're good then, right? And we just drove on to the house. And what it taught me was, is like, Ella was quick to forgive and uh, she was good to be my daughter again, right? Like our our relationship was made whole um, because I had apologized. And man, looking back, like I don't ever remember my dad apologizing for discipline. Like, I don't know about you, but like, I don't ever remember getting an apology for getting a spanking, right? Ever. I, I can't even fathom my dad apologizing for, I remember there were times when, you know, you know, half six kids, there was, you know, always something going on. There was always something to spank somebody for, right? With six kids running around. I remember there were times when, you know, like, you get blamed for something, and no, I I can't ever remember that piece. I remember um, for me, especially the the dad son relationship. Yeah. And I yeah. think my dad pushed me. I thought harder than the other kids, right? And you know his his old adage was always um, life isn't fair, right? And so don't expect me to treat you like the other kids because I'm treating you yeah. how I think you need to be handled. And I think, you know, I look back and I know it's because he saw some things in me, whether it's academic or interest or things like that, that he wanted to make flourish um, as well. Um, You know, or, you know, staring me in in a direction. But I remember I went through a time, especially in my late teens, where I resented the heck out of that because I felt like Mm. um, he showed me uh, stoicism. He showed me like this militaristic discipline of like work. And we always worked. I mean, we had a janitorial service. Parker Janitorial Service. Yeah. I mean, we cleaned, uh, you know, um, <laughs> all, all senior citizen homes, recreational centers. We cleaned our church. Wow. Uh, we did landscaping. I, I always had a job. I grew up, you know, cleaning toilets, mopping floors, shrubs, yeah. hedges, lawns. Uh, we always worked. Um, and I remember that resentment, though, because I always felt like mm. he pushed me. We worked hard. We didn't have a break. And sometimes we um, academically, I couldn't come home with anything less, you know, than a certain grade level. But I remember him pulling me aside. Um, we were cleaning one night. I was in middle school. This was I was probably like eighth grade. He pulled me aside in eighth grade and told me, like, dude, like, I, we don't have money to send you to college. So if you want to go to college, wow. you're going to have to send yourself. Like, oh, eighth grade, right? So I'm like, okay, I got four years. And so I remember taking that as, okay, I've got to. I've got to work hard. I've got to focus. I've got to get my grades together. And people who know me from high school, I mean, you know, I I, I wasn't like the AA student. I was like the B plus A minus student and still had fun. But I remember he did instill into all of his kids a work ethic of yeah. taking accountability and responsibility, not uh, yeah. depending on because we couldn't depend on them financially um, as yeah. well. So, yeah, I, I think some of that has has stayed with me and he, even how I, I view my kids, I think. And you know Caleb. Caleb's my seven-year-old. He's the philosopher, man. I mean, that kid, he goes from talking about Pokemon and complaining about having to wash his hands after he uses the restroom to, like, dropping straight knowledge about, you know, 
praying about God and thing. I mean, the kid is going to be like something, some kind yeah. of spiritual savant. And so, you know, the one thing I'm learning as, as I'm trying to evolve as a father is to uh, hone those unique gifts in each kid. Um, and, you know, don't don't try to shape them, show them. I can't shape them because what they're going to be is already God ordained. That God's got something in. Mm. There's a seed there that I didn't plant. I can't take credit for. But if I can show them but through humility, through grace, through hard work, through uh, my effort, through my prayer life, through role modeling, some of these things, I, I can be yeah. that example. And I think my dad did a lot of good things in that regard of providing and protecting um, as well. But I also want to add to that the ability to kind of steward them in their gifts in a way or I can be humble. I can say I'm sorry. I can kind of say, yeah, yeah, yeah. dad kind of, dad dad messed that up a little bit um, as well. But, you know, it's, it's, it's all an experiment. We won't know how this thing's going to turn out <laughs> for another couple of decades. We love our children. We care for our children. We spend lots of time with our children. Um, and we're very focused on their well-being. And to be frank with you, like, our dads and our grandfathers came from generations where maybe that wasn't quite the same focus and they survived. And so they passed that on to us of like, Hey, you're going to have to figure this out and survive. And so there's part of that, that I do want to instill in the kids, right? Like there's part of that, that I do want to make sure that they, to the point of your dad, like, Hey, you're going to have to work for this. You're going to have to earn this, right? Because we know that just giving them things, um, just creates this sense of entitlement. It doesn't create a sense of responsibility and care for that thing. So I want to instill that in them. But at the same time, I think my apologizing to Ella was more for me than it was for her. And it was this moment where I knew I needed to humble myself. Like I, I had sinned that morning, right? Like I had lost my temper and I had yelled at her and, and Ella's a believer. Like Ella accepted Christ early on. She's been baptized. And as my daughter, right, like, man, I treated her like garbage that morning, to be honest with you. Now, I have that authority over her. You know, did did she need to be ready for school? She absolutely did. But man, like at the same time, like my behavior, my character was not in line um, with what I needed to be as a dad that day. So when I came home, like the first thing I had to do was I had to apologize with her. And you know what, man, like that little kid is so special to your point on Chloe. Like there's days where I, it, it, she does not look or act the same that she did the day before. So it's always like keeping you on your toes. And that's why I say that Ella, um, despite whatever her social challenges are right now at the age of nine, and one day she'll listen to this and she'll hear me say that I know at 26 girl, you're going to be amazing at 26. I'm going to want to hire you into one of our teams to teach us how things can look and be different. I'm going to want to buy your art. I'm going to want to listen to your music. You know, I'm going to want to see your rocket land on the moon. But right now at nine years old, sweetie, like your dad is just trying to figure this thing out with you because there's no manual for me. And, you know, Hey, that, that is what we've got in front of us. Easton's completely different. Emmanuel will probably be even more different than that as a little boy. Um, but yeah, like parenting a child with um, Asperger's or on the autism spectrum is not easy, AP. Let's unpack this. Um, there's this line I'm finding, and it, you touched on it a little bit and how you deal, uh, how you dealt with Ella and probably going forward. There's a difference between the notion of 
uh, control and power, right? So as yeah. a man and as a father, you have an authority, and you can mm-hmm. you can make your kids. I can physically like grab your hand and make you get dressed. I can beat you into submission. Um, I can like I can will you into this, right? So you have this yep. you have this um, ability to control your kids. But mm-hmm. and I think what I'm finding is that that power though. The power comes in not the control, but in the ability to inspire, to teach, right. to role model, etc. That's a line. It it took me. It's taken me a few years to learn. I think with my son, um, you know, all I knew as a first time dad was to kind of dad how I was dadded, <laughs> father how yeah, I was fathered, yeah. right? And so I was. Hard, I mean, I was hard. He was a little kid. Now I, I would get. I mean, it was like spankings, and you will do this. And I mean, he stepped out of line. I let him have it because I was like, like. I you will be straight and narrow. You like you will be this. I remember mm-hmm. I just had a moment where you know just like, does that look like Jesus? Right? Like, is yeah. that how he leads me? And does that look? Is that the grace that I've received every time I've messed up? And and yeah. so it totally changed my trajectory after two years of being a father. In terms, so to unpack that. How, how do you how do you find that balance of like the control and power? Like you know, and yeah. and, and kind of wrestling with that piece, especially as a man, because. You know, we were raised in households where, I mean, yeah, your dad didn't say sorry. You didn't talk back. Like, you yeah. I mean, you did what he said the first time. Your papa probably the yeah. same thing. And so, like, how, how do you how do you balance that authority, that power, and that control? Yeah, yeah it's a great question. And, and back to the beginning conversation we had about your dad and his physical size. Like, I know my physical size compared to these little girls is probably towering. And... I never thought about that until Joe showed me that one day. She said, when you stomp up the stairs or when you raise your voice and you are physically swelling and taking up this space, right? Think about to a little kid what that looks like. That probably looks like fear, right? And so I've been very aware of that, especially as I'm parenting two little girls. I think the second thing is, is that knowing that they are sensitive beings, right? Like their emotions are, are very sensitive. And so I've got to, I've got to handle that very carefully. Um, we know that our kids are going to end up in therapy one day, <laughs> but they're not going to end up in therapy for the reasons that their father abused them, that he hurt them, that their father um, abandoned them. You know, they're going to be unpacking like the the normal stuff that we all have to deal with. But if, if I can get them to 18, 20, 22 years old um, as like these people who know that their father loved them, right? That's what we tell them every day. Hey, I love you. 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 And then my actions follow that up, right? Like, I'm not just saying that, but I'm living out what James teaches us, right? That in word and in deed, right? That my faith has works behind it, even with my children. Like, I want them to see that, that like, hey, I love you. And because I love you, I'm going to apologize. Like, I'm going to lead in that way. Now, you know, you talked about your mar- your your marriage as a mirror for that, right? Like, I also want them to see that my interactions with them as a mirror. Like, they're going to see me love their mother. They're going to see me hugging and kissing their mother. And they're going to see their mother and I arguing. Like, Joe and I argued in front of Eason the other night. And she was like, guys, stop arguing. 
And it's like, no, sweetie, it's okay. Like we can have a discussion and an argument and we're going to come back together. And then we group hugged and she got in on it. But I'm going to mirror that same humility with Ella and with Ethan and in the future with Emmanuel that says, hey, I love you. I didn't get that right. I'm sorry. Because I want them to have that same perspective as they become functioning adults. Yeah, that's good. So how are you balancing the kind of shifting gears into kind of, you know, this notion of your provider? So that providing means I got to sell a house. I got to, you know, shoot a catalog. I got to launch a marketing campaign. I'm the vice president yeah. of marketing for, a, you know, a global luxury leather brand. Um, yeah. I'm taking care of a wife. I'm taking care of property. How yeah. are you like, so this notion of work, but is this family, right? And being there and that yeah. structure and that support and that taking care of them. And also spending time in their world, right? So there's times when you need to be with Ella on that rocket heading to the moon you need to be in the backyard with easton making mud pies and like how you how you balance that i think that's one area where i've failed lately more than i've succeeded and i think that balance of work and family and you know Mm -hmm. it's the old adage of you know the work-life balance and how are you guys finding that now and what are the nuggets that, that you've learned along the way yeah i think the book that you gave me that was written by andy stanley uh when was it working when work and family collide is the name of the book um, by Andy Stanley and the version you gave me had been marked up so I know that you were wrestling with this too um, and the truth is that every guy you talk to that's in our space um, he wants to know like hey how do you balance work and family and I think what was so cool about that book is that God that Stanley said that God designed and developed both of these things. And so because he created both of these things, and he outlines that very clearly, he said they cannot be in conflict with each other. And so that conflict is something that we create. Um, And the truth is, is that we just need to pick one or the other. And so often in times that we feel this conflict inside of us, it's because we haven't decided what's most important in that moment. I think that book really helped me define what is most important. And so in this past year, as Joe's went through cancer treatment after cancer treatment after surgery after cancer treatment. Um, you know, the truth is, is like, I chose her. I chose her. I chose the girls, um, overwork. And I told my team, I love you guys, but I'm shutting it down. I'm not traveling. Um, I'm going to be here. If you need me, you've got me, you've got full access to me, but there are going to be days where I work from the house and previously hadn't done that. And you know what? They succeeded with flying colors. I think they probably were better off because I wasn't there sometimes. They learned to do some things themselves. They didn't need me or like I, my ego thought that I was needed in that space, but I probably wasn't. Like they're good enough. They're professionals, you know? Yeah, I think I chose my family in this last 18 months and it was the right decision. That's good. I, here's what I would say for young professionals, either, you know, you're, single or married but don't have kids yet or you know maybe you have one kid and you're just kind of getting into yeah kind of your career and you're starting to get that that tension between yep. kind of work here i mean here's what i learned and what i'd probably tell myself maybe call it five to seven years ago when i first started having kids it would be that like no one's going to make it okay for you to work less but you it's not your boss's job it's not your uh, team's job. 
Your yeah. company is not going to do this for you. Matter of fact, like it's quite the opposite. I mean, the 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 best team in the world. So it is an indictment on what team you work on. It's just the reality of work, especially in knowledge workers, which a lot of yeah. us are. Right? It's not like we're on a factory line where you know we punch the clock and we leave. If you have a job like that, it's a little more cut and dry. But a lot of us, yeah. we're creating new value by creating new things. We're 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 harnessing ideas to create uh, products that create profit and capital. And I think yeah. the reality of that kind of work is that it, it never stops and it will always take yeah. all you can give. And I think for so long, I've I fell into the trap uh, that I probably kind of saw role model, but role model for other people is that, you know, you are what you do. And so I, I came up with every excuse to like, it's OK, you know, if I'm now platinum on american airlines because i'm i'm traveling a little more yeah now i'm executive platinum because i'm traveling a little more and every night away it's okay because i'm i'm doing it because i'm providing for my family i'm i'm, I'm making money I'm, I'm 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 doing these great things and work to provide for my family and i remember you know sitting around you know in you know bad conference rooms all across the world drinking horrible conference room hotel coffee with dads you know high level guys i mean you know these are you know these are you know, C-suite, high-level executives, SVPs, et cetera. And, you know, it's the same story. It's like all the time we don't see our family. I see my family more on Facebook than I see them in real life. I see my family, you know, once a month or twice a month. And, you know, it's, yeah. and it's, it's become a joke. And, you know, and I remember um, someone told me once, hey, your family will get used to it. I remember thinking, man, do I want them to get used to it? So fast forward yeah. two years later and I'm that guy. I'm the guy I never wanted to be. I never wanted to be the guy that was mm. so spent so much time away from my family that I missed moments, that I missed milestones, and that I signaled how much work what what was important. I remember it all came to head to me. You know, I, I've had a few moments uh, in the past probably couple of years. One that hit me hard because I, I thought I had, I thought I was doing better. I just been on the road uh, last fall. I was. I'm, it's. I don't remember. I was probably you know. A lot of international travel, so those are weeks at a time. You know, those are big chunky trips. So you do two or three of those in a month, and I mean, you might yeah. see your kids six days out of twenty-five or thirty. I remember I came back on a Friday night, and uh, one of my uh, good friends, uh, her father passed, so I wanted to go to the the funeral the next day on a Saturday. So I just got in Friday night. I remember I woke up, and my little daughter Chloe was four at the time. She wanted to go to the funeral with me. And my four-year-old daughter wanted to go to a funeral of, of somebody she didn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember she just wanted to go to the funeral with dad just to be spend time with dad. Yeah. And we, we spent so much time talking about, do you want to go like funeral? Do you know what that means? Et cetera. So I brought her with me. I We got her dressed. She came to a funeral um, of a really good friend of mine. It was her father. I remember the, the young lady whose uh, father had, had passed, uh, and he, he had been been ill for a while. So it was it was a tr- um, it was a hard funeral, um, but it was one of those hopeful funerals. He's a Christian. He's going to heaven, and so it was a, a hopeful funeral. And he got she got up to speak at her dad's funeral, which I can't imagine the pain that would take or the the strength that would take and, and the pain you'd have to overcome. I remember her saying all these great things about him, but the last thing she said was like, "Dad came home." Right. It was like, oh, man, Mm -hmm. like dad, I never had to question if dad loved me because dad always came home. Like, he, you know, he worked however many jobs, but he always came home. So imagine me holding my four year old daughter. Yeah. 
Man, that was tough. That was yeah. tough, dude. So I think for me, that was the moment I said, all right, screw that. I'm not doing that anymore. Like this yeah. whole notion of work being so much more important. And so the Andy Stanley book, I'd recommend for anybody. It's such a great example of like, there's only one you. The reality is there are 10 people in my company right now that could run marketing for Patron and yeah. probably do it better than I could. There are 100 people in the U.S. right now, that uh, maybe 1,000. Who could do that? There's only one Adrian Parker who could be a husband to Alicia and a father to Caleb, Chloe, and Chandler. And so I think yeah. while I want to provide and I want to role model work ethic because work is spiritual and work does have a role, I think we as men, um, and I'd say myself especially, um, we've I've got to do a better job of role modeling what's really important. And I think for so long we tell ourselves the lie of, uh, it's only a season or I'm doing it for my family. And it's bull, man. I, I, I've used every excuse out there so I can speak this with yeah. authority that it's it's not true. It's not true. There is no substitute for you spending time with your kids and your priority is where, you're, is where you spend your time. And so I think for me during this COVID situation, obviously I'd spend a lot of time. I think the reality is as this opens back up, I think the heart of the matter is going to be, hey, what are you going to do next? Yeah. And so for me, I think it's it's a really, really trying time to to put them first i mean they're only gonna be little for so long and then you know they'll be flying around the country or the world with me but while yeah. while we're here yeah it's 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 been a it's been a heartache of mine so you know as you know i've wrestled with i'd wrestle with that for probably yeah. the last couple of years so yeah, yeah I, well, I, I think i realized that a couple of thoughts there number one about 98 percent of the time that we're going to get with our children will be spent between the ages of zero to 18 so what that means is, is after 18 years old, the, we will only get about 2% of whatever it is time that we get with them. That, that's left, right? So you've got to get it in now. And I think the second thing there is that you and I both are proponents and focused on like leadership and good leadership and being better leaders and growing other leaders and developing more leaders within our organizations and our teams. And the truth is, is like sometimes we let that down at home, right? Like we're so focused on what we think is leadership outside of the home that like our team of four or five or six at home, like we let that leadership ball drop all the time because we're like, ah, nah, you know, like our wives got it or, ah, you know, they're going to be fine. I'll be home soon or whatever that is. I think one of the things that stuck out to me about uh, the Stanley book was is that when you leave... It's like leaving your spouse or partner there holding a, a big rock, like, you know, and you're like, hey, hold this rock until I get back. <laughs> it's true. And, you know, that visual picture of how long Johanna or Alicia have had to hold that rock sometimes is hard. And so, man, I get it. I I have run through many an airport late at night. I have lost my mind at a ticket counter a couple times in the Charlotte airport as I'm trying to fight to get home. I've rented a car at midnight to make that drive because I want to be there the next morning when they wake up. Yeah. And Joe always tells me, she's like, it's fine. Like, just stay an extra night. But I want them to know that I fought to get home to them. And to like your friend said about her dad, like, I want to be the kind of guy that when my children do, you know, give that eulogy, they said, dad always fought to get home to us. Yeah, you know? that's it. 
I think here's the key. Your family will never grow as healthy as they could be if you're giving them your leftovers. Yeah. If you keep giving them your leftovers, right? And yeah. here's the challenge that, and I think, if, like I said, if you're a younger guy or new, or building a family and a career simultaneously, here's the thing I found, too. Your, your family isn't even going to be a good indicator of if you're prioritizing them. Because my family actually learned how to um, work without me. Like, so if I asked my kids if they were okay, they're like, yeah, okay, I wish you were here, but it's okay. Like, yeah, you, you missed the spring festival or you missed the thing, but it's okay. I asked my wife. She's like, yeah, I'm fine. Like, we, we have a schedule. Uh, I have a babysitter now. We, we go hang out with other families. Like, they figured out a way to make it work without me, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that just makes it worse. So it's this self-fulfilling uh, yeah. piece. It's this double jeopardy. And this fallacy of, hey, when I arrive, I'll get there, and you won't. And your family isn't even a good indicator. The only thing you can do is take responsibility for your own fatherhood and how much time you need to spend yeah. and insert yourself. And like when I confronted, I, I read the book, you know, uh, Work and Family Collide. I remember polling my family. I literally went family member by family member, hey, what's the most important thing to dad? Well, your work. What's the most important thing to dad? Well, your, your work, Patron mm. Tequila. Well, and, and if you ask me, hey, well, what does dad love? Well, you love us, of course. Even my wife, I mean, she, she didn't feel like she was lacking anything. Um, but I think as I got beneath the surface, I could uncover that she had been so used to holding that rock yeah. that that rock had become common. And so that's the thing. And so my challenge to any listener is your job isn't going to do this for you and your family can be okay in the short term because you yeah. won't know that you're missing it. So, like I said, you got to fight for your family. You got to yeah. you, you got to get there. And so I encourage my teams now like to cheat 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 your job. Right? Communicate, you can't get the project done. Of course, like don't like just drop the ball, but like don't don't work so hard to get ahead at, at work that mm. you leave your family or your spouse behind cuz that those are years, those relationships, that is time that you'll never get back. No, that's so good. And you just touched on it, right? The cheat word. Um, we are going to cheat one way or the other. We're going to cheat work or we're going to cheat our family. And I think it's important for us as leaders to look at our, our team members and say, listen, cheat me. Like you make your priority your family. If you're going to cheat somebody, cheat me. Cheat me, your boss, and I'm okay with that. I think we yeah. just have to give them permission. Yeah, yeah, I think, and role model that too, because I think if they see you leaving at, you know, so little things that I start doing, leave the office, well, when I was going to an office, leave the office at at 5.30, right? So I'm home by 6, et cetera. I block off time, and I sent my team my schedule. So I had a a global team meeting where I I showed them my daily schedule. Hey, here's when dad works out, or not, here's when agent works out, or he's, he's dropping his kid off. And so I gave them permission to like, hey, here's how I spend my time. Yeah. And so I think you got to be super intentional of, about role modeling that time allocation, but yeah. also making it okay. Like, and so even for me, like that email you want to send over the weekends, like maybe you just don't send that till Monday. Like, you know, those yeah. little things are indicators. And so as yeah. leaders, we create the climate for that to thrive or fail based on our actions. And so I think we've got to be super accountable for that. But also uh, role model that in our homes, but also in, in, in corporate settings. So I think what we just described, what you just described very clearly, was work that we are doing as individual dads, 
right? Like, hey, this is my job. I'm going to do that job. I'm providing for my family. I'm coming home. But what about the job that we do together as a family? I think you experienced this as a kid, right? Like your family had lawn care service. They had cleaning services. You guys were literally working as a family. Um, Talk about that for a second. Yeah, I mean, we all had to chip in, right? I think the reality is uh, because of the economics of my dad's job and the number of people we had in our house you know there was a there wasn't a scenario where we could where we could uh have a, a lifestyle and take care of ourselves without the kids having a a a active role in helping out right and there were many nights that you know if it was late and we had school work my dad would go out and clean by himself two buildings right like two buildings full like these are two three-story buildings by himself mm. after working a full you know, day's job at a at a defense plant, and so several nights he did that. But I mean, for the most part, we we were there, and I think it, you know it was a part of just our responsibility. You know, um, one of the um, things he used to say all the time, you know, if a job is worth doing, is worth doing right. I used to hate it because I'm I'm a guy that likes to cut corners. Like I'm a good enough guy. Like if it's good enough, I'm good. But he, it instilled in us a work ethic. Yeah. It instilled in us a sense of unity and contribution to our family, but also showed us, like, dude, like, what we didn't want. And here's the deal. It wasn't because of lack of education. My dad had a master's degree. He, I mean, he's a smart guy, right? It, it was almost as if he, he situationally positioned us there because he knew this season was so important, mm-hmm. his faith journey and working in the church, et cetera. So it wasn't, it wasn't this... Oh, bad decisions that made our family be in poverty. It was actually where we were supposed to be. It's this crazy kind of notion. And so I think, you know, that 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 ability to contribute to our family gave each of us a work ethic. So now as I go down the line, I think about, you know, my, my family and, you know, there's some of those educated people in the world. Oh, my gosh. My brother has like five degrees. My sister has like 10. I mean, yeah. I'm I'm the dummy of the family. But I think we each grew uh, in not only a work ethic, but also we knew um that our parents weren't there to facilitate our success. Our mm. parents are there to raise adults, yeah. right? So raising an adult means you let them fail, you let them work. I think so many parents, I observe even, you think your job is to make your kids successful, so you take away failure, you take away resistance, you take away um, friction. And now you've got these 20, 30-year-old uh, man-children, right? Yeah. So I guess they're like, they're men in age, Physically, but they don't know how to lose. They don't know how to yeah. struggle. There is no grit yeah. um, as well. And I think all of us have that. And I think that that was the biggest outcome of it. Even though we were lacking in material possessions, we were so, so rich. And I think um, work in faith and in family that I think it compensated by and large and paid us dividends for, for years to come. Yeah. I think I'm going to struggle with that as a dad when, you know, the girls are in their late teens, early twenties. I I mean, like I can see myself still wanting to be that dad that like covers their car payment and pays for their cell phone and, you know, gives them extra money. And the truth is, is that after 18, like I was on my own, like mom and dad helped to pay for half a college, but I worked my way through school. I paid for my own car insurance, my own car payments. I bought my own books, you know, they gave me gas money every once in a while, but like we were on our own after 18 and now I'm watching like grown kids, like 28, 29, 30, like mom and dad is still paying for stuff. 
right? Yeah. And I gotta wonder if they had been cleaning with the Parker family at eight, nine, ten, eleven years old, right? Like, would would they be paying for that stuff today? I don't think so, man. Like, I, I don't think so. I think the reason that you guys in the Parker clan are the way that you are, the way that we are the way we are in the Calfi clan is because, like, this idea of hard work was instilled in us at such an early age, and we had to be participants in that. It, we were not allowed to be just spectators. We had to be participants. Now, like, let's be honest, right? Like, I bet you were terrible at your job at eight or nine years old. In the, in the Parker clan, right? And I bet your mom or dad had to go behind you and clean whatever it was that you were supposed to clean or remo whatever it was you were supposed to. I bet you were terrible, but you were part of the team. And I think that that's so important. So one of the things that like our girls have been a part of from day one is they have been into every old building that we have been into. They have been into every old house that we have been into. Um, we have not shielded them from that. And, you know, people are like, oh, man, you can't believe you're going to take your kids into that house. Or, you know, like when we've renovated a HUD house and moved our family into it, you know, I remember my mom wouldn't even walk inside one time because it was, it was rough, right? But our kids have always been a part of that. Our kids will take away that anything can be reclaimed, anything can be redeemed, anything can be restored. It's funny. I think my kids think that I can fix anything because of that. They're like, oh, yeah, dad will fix that. But I know it's also going to have me going to fix stuff at like 30 years old for them at wherever they're living at that time. So You will absolutely be that guy that fixes everything. And then you'll be the grandpa that probably does the same thing. I'm good with, I, I, I'm good with that. I can fast forward. I can see that for sure. But I want them to be active participants yeah. in that, right? So I want yes. our children to see that restoration is what is at the core of the Calfi family, right? Like we believe that these things can be redeemed and they can be made beautiful again. I just wish they would figure this out on a daily basis in their playroom and their own room upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. It, it starts in baby steps, right? And yeah, I think one of the biggest things about parenting that I overlook is just the power of just consistency. Yeah. Like, you got to just do it every single day. Like the questions you ask, yeah. uh, the conversations you have, you know, my parent, my, uh, my kids see me in you know, my office writing or reading, and then they'll pull up. They're like, can I write? Okay, yeah. right? I, I love that. I, I love that they can role model that. And I think if we just you know, took our blinders off and said, hey, like, you know, so much is not um, taught, it's caught. It's the stuff that they see in you when you're not talking that yeah. matters so, so much. And so yeah. I think yeah. you, your girls are seeing this consistency in how you're pouring into other men, yeah. how you're restoring buildings, how you're building relationships how you're leading your family, how yeah. you're treating your wife. Those those things that are caught, those are things that are indelible. Those are the things that are going to impact and make that dent that you want to leave. Yeah. And yeah. so that 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 saying on your tombstone is going to be reality. That's that's true. Well, it's so true because the other night I came home and I wanted to talk to them about race. Like we were at dinner sitting down together and I said, "Hey guys, like take a break for just a second. Like let's talk about what racism is." Like, let's put a term to this thing. And, you know, they listened for a few minutes and we talked about, you know, what racism is and what it means to mistreat people because they have a different skin color than us. And and it may have lasted three or four minutes. And they were like, OK, good. Like and they went off and did their thing. And 
what we've talked about this before, like I had that conversation with them, but my behavior, our behavior in our home is one that is constantly having people of other races and, and other spaces into our home. They're part of our family. They're in our refrigerator. And so I think that speaks way more to them than my concern about having that conversation at the dinner table with them about what racism is and, and why it's not part of our family. But what I will tell you is, is that I always want them to remember that. I always want them to remember, not only did we model it, but we also talked directly directly about this thing. Like we didn't ignore it. We didn't sweep it under the rug. Hey, there's this really bad thing happening and we need to make sure that it doesn't happen anymore. I just want at least want to be able to say with a very clear conscience that we had that conversation. And then yes, to your point, I want our behavior to model the rest of it for us. Know that, um, you know, the verse we use about money sometimes, you know, it's uh, where your treasure is, there your your heart heart will be also. I think that applies to more than just your money. I think that applies to things like that. Yeah. I don't want to play Barbie dollhouse, but what was I doing yesterday? I was playing Barbie, Barbie dollhouse. dollhouse. I was doing tea parties and I'm learning so much more from my son about Bakugan and Pokemon and uh, Beyblades and all kind of toys and shows that yeah. I would so much rather read a good book. I would so much rather do something else. Yep. But that's, that's their world. And so I think taking the opportunity, take a break from being a provider yeah. to get into their world Sometimes, and that's a luxury. I get it. I mean, for ninety percent of the world's population, just feeding yeah. your family is like it. So playing, you know, is, is a lower piece. But I think um, if if you have that opportunity, it, it plants so many seeds that are so much important. Yeah. Um, later on, as they fulfill their identity, they build their esteem, that they start to get about a sense of their own self worth. Yeah, that's great. Um, do you have any other resources? Any other books that you would recommend? Yeah, man, you know me. I always got a a, a good book uh, around. So here, the book that has changed me the most as a father is a very simple one. It's called "The Power of a Praying Parent," mm. uh, Stormy O'Martian. Um, and she she has several books: "Power of a You Know Praying Husband, Praying Wife." But the power of a praying parent is even if you're not a believer, I'd say this. There are things that you don't even know you should be thinking or praying about for your kids that has totally changed my life. And so, you know, if, uh, Chloe's fearful about starting school. Caleb is still struggling with, you know, uh, a kid at school who's being mean to him. Things like that. I mean, there are so many specific uh, parts of the Bible and prayers that you can pray over your kids yeah. and real power and authority that. I had no clue. I mean, you know, I, I didn't I didn't learn how to pray some of these things over my kids. So I'd say that has been such a big um, hallmark of teaching me uh, the humility of praying for my kids specifically by name mm-hmm. but and by problem. I think getting so specific about it. that This has changed, I think, uh, me a lot. Anytime I'm wrestling with something with my kids, I'll start with prayer. It doesn't end there. You know, I have books about... Raising sensitive kids or raising strong daughters. I mean, I have those too, but I think when I wrap it in prayer, man, mm. there's, there's, it's, it's hard to stop it when, when you wrap it that way. That's so good, man. Hey, and what I'll say about the, the books by Stormy is do not judge them by their cover. Uh, the Power of Praying Husband has probably the cheesiest, most terrible 1980s cover ever, but the content is so good. The same with uh, The Power of a Praying Parent. Do not judge that book by what the cover looks like. Yeah, it's really good. 
How about you? Any uh, parenting resources? No, I, I think just the Andy Stanley book we talked about was When Work and Family Collide. But I do listen to a podcast called The Daily Dad every day. And it's not a faith-based podcast as much as it is just a podcast that's kind of about wisdom as a father. And I think it's so transferable. It's about two minutes long every day. It's just kind of encouragement or kind of a push or kind of a sharpening that you need. Uh, Just a reminder. Um, But yeah, it's called the Daily Dad Podcast. It's excellent. Excellent. It's good. Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll check that out. Um, One other book I'd recommend... Um, I, I have several parenting books. I'll, I'll uh, I, I think I have a link on my um, Instagram that has a gallery of them. One I think is really worthwhile as we start. I think new age modern parenting has kind of taken on a you know like you said like we're having conversations with our kids or about our kids that our dad or our grandfathers were never having. Um, I found this book How How to Raise an Adult is really good. Uh, Julie Lifekoff Hames. Um, really, really well-respected uh, academic, uh, but also worked at a college. So she's worked in admission. So she's seen like generations of kids getting into college and has witnessed like, oh my, these kids are not prepared yeah. to be adults, yeah. right? So how to, how to Raise an Adult is just a simple book. It's fact-based and she has her own kids, but it, it really just centers on how to stop overparenting your kids and preparing them for success and dispelling some of the myths of parenthood, like this idea that, you know, like your kids can't play in the front yard without you watching the whole time because somebody's going to kidnap them. Like she dispels all this, these really bad fear-based things that we do as parents and like, let your kid go. Like, like kind of, it'll be okay. Yeah. Like let them fail as well. So like I said, the, it's not to raise a successful kid, your job is to raise an adult. And so those, those are two very different yeah. uh, tracks as well. So that's another book I highly recommend. That's good. All right. So I think um, letting go, right, of s- some of the bad advice as well. Don't burn a cow in a field. Don't burn a cow in the field. Don't leave a kid in, in, in the front seat to uh, disengage your parking brake. Uh, what else we got? <laughs> Uh, don't yell at your kid because they're naked and they're not ready to go to school. <laughs> I love that as well. So we're, we're letting go of those. We are uh, learning what's new, I think. And you know, I think for me, it was really around that idea of uh, difference of control and power and yeah. realizing that my job as a dad is to really serve their mom and serve them uh, by role modeling independence, not asserting my authority uh, because I can but loving yeah. them in, in power as well. What about you? What's the... Yeah, same. And then I would say yeah. that tension between work and family, and the truth is Ooh. you're going to cheat one or the other. So yeah. um, don't cheat your family. Cheat work. Yeah. Yeah. And as I think about leading what's next, conversation me and Alicia have had uh, recently is the challenges and the opportunity of raising um, little black kids in yeah. uh, not only just this world in the generic kind of you know universal sense, but raising African American children in a majority white environment. So yeah. where they worship, where they learn, where they sleep, where they play, where they get donuts, where they do ballet, yeah. where they play soccer, they are 
oftentimes the only black kid in those groups. Yeah. I look back on my the first six years of my life, I was the same way. I went over to my mom's house yesterday. Huh. I had pictures from like preschool, the first grade, or my soccer team. Yeah, I was the only little black boy running around at Sleepy Hollow Elementary in uh, Amarillo, Texas. And I think as I fast forward, you know, and some of the research I've seen shows that like, man, like we got to work harder to instill identity of their heritage, yeah. uh, of their identity into them because it has such a overwhelming effect later on in life and how, and how they view themselves. And so for yeah. us, we can't put that on autopilot. So I, I, so I yeah. have to be so much more intentional around the media they consume, yeah. um, how I'm fathering, the messages they receive as well. Um, and because so much of what we just take as normal is so either... You know, it's you know, there's racial undertones that we don't even identify with, or it's it's not even mm-hmm. racism. It's just the racial undertones of oh, well, here's a preferred look, or the misogyny or the sexism in some of the things. Like this stuff is just like air. It's the oxygen of media. And I think what I'm leading next is I think working on hey, how do we? I'm not trying to fix my kids, and this is what my wife challenged me on because she feel like hey, don't try to fix the kids. But I think I have a responsibility while they're in my house to make sure they're nurtured with the right kind of oxygen, the right kind mm. of nutrients that start to build up their identity. And I think for uh, black kids in majority white environments, I think that gumbo needs to look a little different because yeah. they need to have that strong identity. That The things I got from growing up in a black neighborhood, even though it was a hood, or going mm-hmm. to a black church, or having black classmates, like that, mm-hmm. that there's something there in identity. Um, that the kind of rounds you out that I want to make sure uh, my kids are getting. So that's what I'm leading. I'm, I'm, I'm leading and learning on that one because I don't have the answer, but it's something that's very much on, on yeah. our radar. Yeah. Uh, and I think you're going to have some hard conversations ahead of you that I'm not going to have to have with my girls um, or my son. You're going to have to have those conversations that the other kids' parents are not having with their kids. And that's going to be a challenge for you. And I'm sure you're going to feel a little bit of resentment and frustration about that. But I think you and I both want these to be those the last generation that we have to have those conversations with, right? So that the generations ahead of us, man, we don't have to deal with this same stuff about you know how you behave when you get pulled over by a police officer or what you need to wear in this situation because you're black. I think... Those are the kind of conversations that I want to end for your kids. Um, and I know that this seems idealistic, but man, I believe that we're the generation that can can make that happen. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. Well, that, that's why we're doing what we're doing now, man. How we work, how we teach, uh, all of it. Yeah, all of it's yeah. going towards that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm there with you. Um, I think for me in the future, um, you know, I've got a nine-year-old girl. She'll be 10 this summer. And... Again, we've talked about some of the social challenges with Ella right now. Um, dude, she's going to be a teenager soon. Like, let's just be real. And there's going to be some, there's some things that come with that and, and being female. And, you know, everybody jokes about like, it's like an alien took over your kid's body as a teenager. And so as we move into that space, I just want to take these next couple of years with her. And I really want to foster and grow a heart that loves God and loves people so that when she does get taken over by an alien, like there'll be something great to come back to. Um, 
man, because I tell you, like when I look at that kid, I just see somebody that could change the world. And my job is to like take such good care of that thing so that when she is 26, and we just talked about this, that like we do want to hire her on our teams. We do want to make her a part of our life and art and culture. But man, it's hard and like kids are mean and you know, we're re- already starting to see those those like clicks and the name calling and bullying and all that kind of stuff start and that's just been in third grade. So, we've got uh some work to do in front of us and there're just no days off in this game, man. Yeah, I hear you on that. Well, you know, I'm pretty confident I'll probably end up working for Ella one day. So, yeah, she's <laughs> she's a uh, her, her genius is is not lost on me, so I'm I'm no I'm I'm with you, brother. No, dude, this has been such a good convo. Um, thank you so much for being willing to kind of like unpack that stuff about your dad, and um, I love the Reverend Parker, man. He's the man. He's a good dude, man. I, I think the you know the old adage of the you know, the the dad or the granddad that people see now is like so evolved from the dad you had when you know 30 40 years ago so yeah. no he's a he, he's a blessing it's, it's been great to see his evolution and spend time with him as peers and as you know it's kind of like we can have just heart-to-heart conversations i've so yeah. enjoyed that as well and so ha- happy father's day to you man and uh and russell pawpaw um, as well, been, you guys have been in my prayers. I know you just um, had to say goodbye to your to, to your grandpa, but I hope you guys have a amazing week, and I hope your Father's Day was the best ever. Sounds like you were on the lake with the lady. It was a good day, and you guys deserved a good day, my man. All right, love you, and I will talk to you next week. Awesome, man. Holla. Hey guys, this is DC, and this was the Unfollow Podcast. We hope you like what you heard today. And if you didn't, that's okay. There's 100,000 other podcasts you can choose to subscribe to. But if you like this one, do us a favor and subscribe or share it with a friend. 